You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, guys. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. This week, for the second time in 180-something episodes, we're doing an expert developer segment where I've got in one of the people I looked up to in Perth more than nearly anyone, someone who's been a mentor to me over the last few years, someone who's achieved more in property and development, real estate in the last couple of decades than nearly anyone in Western Australia. And I'm very lucky to have him in the studio and everyone listening should count themselves lucky to have Evan Campbell in the studio today. Evan, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, thanks for the invitation, Trent. It's a pleasure. Mate, I reckon we could spend 20 minutes just talking through your background, but we'll try and speed that up as quick as possible to get to the real value you can add to the listeners. But can you walk us through, I guess, where you started back when you were in your 20s? And if I can provide some highlights to everyone listening, guys, this is someone who has run Mervac WA. He's been the CEO. He's been the DM on the Olympic Village back in the year 2000, putting together over 900 apartments. He's an executive director at Blackburn. He's got a number of his own developments that he manages for himself and other people over time, stuff you would have heard of but would never have known that he was a part of it. He's one of those very uh, strategic men and he's someone that I look to and go, geez, if I could achieve what he's achieved in his career, I'd be a very successful and proud person. But that's my perspective, Evan. Maybe you can give a, uh, your own, I'm sure, much more humble version of your last couple of decades. Thanks, Trent, for those generous words. I guess my passion for property started when I was about 14 years of age. I was fortunate enough to be involved in the purchase process when mum and dad moved from country New South Wales to Sydney. And I went through the process of them buying a family home in Sydney. And I spent four days with a real estate agent driving around Sydney, trotting through various homes, This guy was a pretty suave guy, but he drove the -the state-of-the-art Mercedes-Benz, and I thought, you know what, I reckon I could do that. So from the age of 14, I always wanted to get into real estate. When was this? This was in 1986. Yeah, wow. So these are the old statesman Mercedes we're thinking about here. Yeah, it was a big saloon. From that moment, in year 10, I read in one of my school reports that I wanted to get into real estate. Anyway, a few years on, I wanted to actually go into sales, but I was too young. So my HR advisor at school said, well, Evan, you've done quite well. You could actually do a Bachelor of Business in Land Economics. And so that's what I did. I finished out at University of Western Sydney in 1991. That was a difficult part of the market at that, at that time, or, or the economy. We're rather. on the back end of, of Wall Street crash, aren't we? That's right. So that was a, the, the market was really tough in 91. So I started working in real estate at, the, at a local real estate office for free for six months. So wow. I wanted to gain some experience. You wouldn't see that these days, would you? No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Thankfully, my parents supported me. And then a training development executive position come up at Mervac and about 160 applicants applied. And long story short, I got it. The country boy from New South Wales got the job and another mate of mine who's a good friend now from Blacktown High School also got the job. So they took us on. So I started as a trainee working very close with the managing director and the directors of Mervac in 92. What was Mervac like as a business back then? It was a stapled security, a REIT at that time. So they had a property trust and then had a development business. They started in 1971. Quite a substantial business by that point, still 20 years in. If you're still around after 20 years in business as any land developer or property developer, you're probably doing some significant projects. And this is 30 years ago. Absolutely. They were doing fantastic projects. They were recognised as the leading apartment developer in the east coast of Australia. They had very good values and they had very good business principles. And that was really from the founding managing director of Robert Hamilton, who's still recognised today as a legend in the property industry in Australia. And I was very fortunate to learn lots from Bob. 
you've obviously then progressed through the business over the next few years to get to some management levels and can you remember what projects you thought well I've actually got my stamp on these projects now that today would be developments or estates that people have been living in for quite a while. I spent two years in head office and then Mervac said to me, I was 23 at that age, we'll send you out to Parramatta to our housing business where you can do your own townhouse and small villa developments. And if you stuff one of those up, you probably won't send us broke, so that's okay. Yeah. So I spent a couple of years out there in terms of learning the trade, if you like doing several projects around Blacktown and other areas. It's crazy and, how that part of the world has moved so far these days. Oh, absolutely. Because it? it was really the backwash of Sydney back then and now you think you probably pay more there for a meeting house property here in Perth. Sure. I mean, the areas that I was doing, villas and townhouses, probably got you know six and eight-storey apartment buildings on them now. Wow. That's how much it's changed. But that's changed because of all the infrastructure Sydney's got as well that made all those areas much more accessible. After a couple of years in Parramatta at Mervac Homes, I then got the opportunity to run Mervac's biggest project at the age of 24, which is called Beacon Cove in Port Melbourne, which was a $800 million project with apartment buildings, houses, convenience store, medical centre, childcare centre, rec centre, rail extension, right on Princess Pier where the spirit of Tasmania stops Wow. going from Tasmania to Melbourne. So I spent a couple of years on that project and then I elected to go back to Sydney for family reasons and then I was given the job to be the development manager of the apartments at the Olympic Village for the 2000 Games. That's a pretty young age to take on that sort of responsibility, not only an $800 million development, but then being on the coalface for the Olympic Village. There's a lot of expectation deadlines for someone who's just come out of the nightclub scene at that age, really, <laughs> to be able to take that responsibility and have people trust you for that. You must have been building a lot of trust. Yeah. I guess I earned my respect, Trent. I didn't go to many nightclubs in those days. Yeah. I was probably considered a bit of a nerd. But yeah, I learned my trade, worked very closely with Bob Hamilton, who Bob actually took it very personally that Mervac's brand was attached to the Olympic Village. So we often spent weekends walking through apartments, walking through houses, trying to improve our product all the time. That was a massive team approach. We put 900 apartments into construction in nine months with five different architectural teams working all around Australia, in Brisbane, in Sydney and in Melbourne to get that done. Mervac Construction delivered that project, which was fantastic. You're not living in the East Coast anymore. What was that impetus to bring you over here? The impetus was uh, a couple of things. Firstly, I was given the opportunity to come over here and run the Burswood bid. And at the same time, Mervac bought Finney Group. And I did the due diligence at the same time of buying Finney Group, which was a great success for Mervac. And they wanted a Mervac person to come across to Western Australia and be part of the team. You were that person? So I, I was that person. So at 29, I was a development director. As I mentioned, we'd won the Burswood project. That was a big project. That was one of Perth's biggest projects. Still being in development today by Mervac. Has some six or 700 dwellings built there now which was a challenging project because it was just a sand pit. There was not one blade of grass on that when we started. Is that the peninsula in between Crown and the, the stadium these Correct. days? Correct. It yeah. is the peninsula project, which is exactly right. It used to look over the golf course, now it looks over the greenery between Crown and, and Optus Stadium. Have you been to WA before you made the move? No. Were you a little bit nervous about what is this country town I'm going to? Am I going to be ruining my career? <laughs> I was a little bit nervous because I actually, I did come over here, sorry, about two or three weeks before and I come over here for a wedding and the church service was at Armadale and I drove along Albany <laughs> Highway yep. all the way to Armadale and I don't think I saw a two-story home and I'm thinking, wow, 
it's going to be interesting trying to make a, make some money in Western Australia yeah. driving along Albany Highway. But I was relieved when the reception was at Fraser's. Then I thought, wow, how fantastic is Perth? Look at across the South Perth, across to the river, the city. And I thought, wow, this is a great place. And when was this? And what an opportunity. That was in 2001. So in 2001, I moved across here. When I moved to Melbourne, I never let go of Sydney. And when I was moving to Western Australia, I said, I'll join a golf club here and I'll make Perth my home. So you really committed to it. And I mean, this is the time before that mining boom in 2007 to 15, where you'd see 30 cranes down the terrace. This is before those cranes even arrived. Absolutely. Perth was a very different place yeah. back in 2001. It was. It was was a lot sleepier than what it is now and then obviously we had the upturn from about 2003 onwards where we had a lot of GSP with the mining boom and as you know Trent we had a lot of population growth at that time as well. Property is a game of timing more than anything sometimes we get lucky with the timing and other times people say well I made my luck because that that timing was a part of my strategy Mm. but I guess just like Blackburn which where you're an executive director these days but also your time at Mervac a lot of businesses that started in those early 2000s, it was fantastic timing to try and grow a business in property development, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. We are coming off a low base in Western Australia. There wasn't a lot of housing choice and Mervac do their product very well. And there was a pent-up downsizer market and a pent-up market here wanting to downsize and move closer to our city. And Mervac certainly were market leaders in that space and then others followed since then. So over that time in Mervac, can you detail us through a couple of developments in Western Australia? And I know it was not just in Perth, it was across the state, where we'd look today and go, oh, Evan did that. Yeah, there's several developments I was heavily involved in. Probably the peninsula, Burswood, is one of the main projects that I was heavily involved in the vision of, obviously with my big team at Mervac at the time. I'm very proud of that project. The other one is Leighton Beach down at uh, North Fremantle that was designed by the late Kerry Hill and I think is a great opportunity. Sadly, I think it should have probably had more height, Trent. You think about height and you think about Western Australia, it's probably the one thing I think that holds us back in a way. You, there's so many places on the East Coast where the planning perspective is different and height isn't something people are scared of. We could talk about height for a whole episode and how our cityscape, our uh, population could have changed in terms of urban design if height wasn't something we look at with with such scrutiny look it's funny to to think about something like Leighton where Mervac was really a front runner in that space and then nothing really happened until the last year or so and now there seems to be a big push through North Fremantle with most of the big developers they've all got their own projects there Mm. now it's years after you went in there Mm. no exactly North Fremantle has great amenity has a great beach and it has excellent facilities and amenities at Fremantle. You know, the Fremantle is the, there's a new Fremantle happening now in the marketplace. New restaurants, new cafes. It's got a real vibe to it. People want to be a part of it. Caratha, there was a lot of work up from Mervac and Caratha and I guess it starts, you start to shape a town when you have that much presence, mm. right? Yeah, Caratha went through a massive boom. It got overheated and that makes it very hard to deliver in a marketplace and that's what we're struggling a little bit now in Western Australia, which is lack of labour, lack of resources. That got overheated back then in um, 2012-13. It then had a major crash, but now it's coming back again because the resources are so strong. So we skip forward a few more years now. The market's crashed. Things have started to slow down in, in Western Australia when it comes to opportunities for property development, especially at the large scale of a businesses like Mervac, like Finney. A lot of these companies, they need a market where they can pump out hundreds of apartments a year on top of any commercial that developments they're doing. You've taken on a role as an executive director at Blackburn. I guess you've got some fantastic insights into a business that's probably the standout business over the last 15 years. No one has achieved what Blackburn has achieved since their inception in that time frame in Western Australia. And you've been there for the last 
six years now assisting guiding witnessing that growth into now a couple of projects that are market leading that no one's really had the balls to do for years can you explain a little bit of what makes that place a little bit different is it the leadership is it the people is it timing again have they had a really lucky run or is it all that's together Trent it's probably a number of factors it's around discipline on what sites you buy and locations. We had some challenging projects, legacy projects that Paul and the guys and the team had to deliver. But then we were quite selective where we chose to develop next. So we did a lot of development in the western suburbs because that was a strong market, was very undersupplied, and it had a high median house price for own occupiers. So Very risk mitigator on the downside as well. That, that's exactly right. One Subiaco, we just thought that was a, just an opportune time. The site had been on the market for several years and we thought there was a great potential to get upside in the height of that building. A lot of Paul's philosophy is very similar to Mervac's philosophy that less is more. So whilst we got more height, we actually did probably 30% less apartments than what was in the previous scheme. Well, I think that's forward-looking in that whilst there are many places around the world that are happy to compromise on space for apartments, especially you look through Southeast Asia, uh, you look through a lot of uh, South America, North America, even through some parts in Western Europe, they're happy to take small apartments. I don't think we're a culture, especially even just in Western Australia compared to the East Coast, that have really been prepared to make a compromise to small apartments, especially if you're going to pay a premium for them. And one of the great things I think Paul's recognised in Blackburn is, and I guess that's come from his whole team assisting that, is to recognise that there is a market where there is a premium space for apartments, but you must provide as much amenity as possible, as close to what the buyer is downsizing from to justify people spending that. Yeah, You're absolutely right, Trent. This market is still considered embryonic compared to nationally. So to entice people to move out of their homes, you need to ensure the apartments of the right sizes. Our balconies are bigger, for example, in Western Australia than they are in the East Coast, and you need to tick all the boxes. So Whilst you don't want to make the apartments too big or too small, you've got to think about every square metre you build to make it as livable as possible for those downsizers, for example, to be able to put their furniture out of their homes. I think timing's everything in this space as well. When you think about the acquisition time frame for one Subiaco, it's probably a time where Subiaco Oval had just been demolished or was about to be about that time frame. That whole area around Rockaby Road was at its absolute pits. It'd probably never been worse in terms of culture, in terms of vibrancy, in terms of vacancy as well. It's a very ballsy move for a lot of people to, to go, well, that's when you go and buy that site. But at the same time, just like any contrarian view, the best time to buy is at the bottom of the market. And then what I believe will happen from this development is it will nearly be the centerpiece, the flagship of rejuvenation that's already happening in anticipation of this project. Absolutely. And Blackburn also had a long history with Stockland, with Subiaco Square, so they knew the market. Paul is very passionate about Subiaco and and felt a real sense that he wanted to actually put Subiaco back on the map and took it personally to to do a grassroots campaign where he went and knocked on all the operators and retailers' doors, introduced himself and said, hey, I want to make Subiaco better. And that's what he's doing today with a fantastic ground plane of about 2,500 square metres. And you just heard, maybe a little bit lobbying from me, that Paul's moving Blackburn's head office to Subiaco, yeah, which is fantastic. Yeah, that's great. You're really walking the walk then, right? Let's go back to, which more importantly about this episode, your space, your journey. You're an executive director there. What involvement would an executive director have in a business like Blackburn that most people would understand clearly has a lot of involvement still from its managing director being Paul I think there's a everyone would recognize the guys over everything in his business he's very hands-on 
where does an executive director like yourself step in? How do you bring your mark to the business? Yeah, it's probably lessons learned, to be honest, Trent. You know, a bit of grey hair around, a little bit of an alternate view, things to watch out for, devil's advocate, things to be mindful of, all based on previous experiences that I've had. So my job is to help Paul. My job is to help the team. And yeah, be a devil's advocate. I help in many aspects of the Blackburn process from site acquisition all the way through to detailed sales and marketing strategies or actually selling during our sales and marketing processes on the ground, which you run into me at, yeah, at um, the I Grove. Love that. I love that, right? And we can certainly segue into the Grove in a minute, but I think you touched on something really important there is that success in property development is so much less about focusing on the profit. It has to start with focusing on mitigating the risks. And if you don't understand the risks or you don't even know the risks are there in the first place because you don't have the experience to have come up against them before or seen them somewhere else before, then that's where the real hurdles come in that chip away at that profit. Most people will know by now, especially from what I've said and people have told me in the past, you make your money when you buy. So the one that Blackburn's going to make on this project, for example, was already there the day you bought that site, <laughs> right? And then every single hurdle that you face along the way, whether it be cost pressures, time pressures, planning implications that reduce the opportunity in this development, they're all the hurdles that you need to have to be able to foresee and, and build fat into to make sure that profit from the day you buy it is still there the day you finish it, right? Sales completions, for example. I'm guessing that's a big part of where you come in to make sure that his very optimistic feasibilities like most business owners would have are very much paired back to realism. Yeah, I think our feasibilities are generally fairly realistic. Mm. You're right. It's all about the acquisition of the site and what you buy it for and where you buy it in the cycle. But as you know, property is all about the detail. You can't leave any stone unturned because it'll come back and bite you. So while some markets, there's sales and marketing risk, whereas in the downturn, there wasn't a lot of delivery risk or construction delivery risk, now there's more, you know, there's not a lot of sales and marketing risk, but there's actually construction delivery risk. So I play right through the whole development continuum and are involved in the PCG meetings to ensure that we have the focus on all those aspects right through from acquisition through to concept DA all the way through to settlements. Let's step on to quickly the growth. I guess they had a pretty similar strategy at a pretty similar time and capitalizing on a pretty similar market, to be honest, right? If it works at one Subiaco, for me, I look at it and go, this is just a copy and paste down the road at Peppermint Grove. Yeah, somewhat. That market in Peppermint Grove was has been undersupplied for many, many years. Decades. Yeah. On and, purpose. And, yeah. And the market was actually crying out for a downsizer product. And that's exactly what Paul's created there with some of the best facilities at rivaling anywhere in Australia. Mm. So I guess it's great being a part of that story. The cool thing about what I like about your career these days is you've got your hands in a lot of pies. Another pie is your directorship at Kalgoorlie Metro. For a long time there, no one wanted to touch Kalgoorlie as a place that with the gold price being down, there really wasn't a lot of development, not a lot of sales activity. But I tell you what, you must be pretty happy having having involvement in the town at the moment. It seems like not only has it grown and had a lot of confidence come back over the last nine to 12 months, but geez, it looks like it's got some run for a good another couple of years, the way that inflation is running and how the gold price has always been a hedge against that. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Trent. We had a tough period in Kalgoorlie for a long time where the market was very benign. Mm. But, you know, with gold now, with nickel, with lithium, with rare earths, it really is booming in Kalgoorlie in terms of the mineral activity or the mining activity. 
Um, property prices have only just started to go up there. Initially, it was all about turnover and velocity. Activity. Activity. Yeah. But now there's, now it's probably gone up around 15% in the last 12 months. We're selling between 25 and 30 properties a month in Kalgoorlie. That's Kalgoorlie Metro. Uh, my partner's Karen's business, which I'm a director of. She's the Brains Trust and the leader in that business. So are you confident you think this isn't just another blip? Obviously, Kalgoorlie is always a part of a mining cycle, but my perspective is that this has got quite a a strengthened plateau for quite a while. I'm very confident about Kalgoorlie, just with other mooted projects with BHP and others, and also the fact that there's such a low cost base up there, talking about the mining game, very mature businesses with long mine lives in them as well. Mm. And there's just been no supply. There's been no supply of housing in Kalgoorlie. And, you know, there's still numerous jobs trying to be filled. And interesting, about 70% of our tenants' applications are from interstate applicants. Have they got anywhere to live? I mean, you talk about supply... It's hard enough getting supply in Perth. It's nearly impossible yeah. getting supply in Karratha. What's it like in Kalgoorlie? Yeah, it's very difficult in Kalgoorlie as well. We've got a vacancy rate of around 1%. So, you know, t- tenants do find it hard to find places, and that's a real challenge at the moment. But Development WA and others are bringing on more land, which is a good thing. As a developer, if you haven't already gotten into Kalgoorlie for some strategic sites, have you maybe missed the boat already? Or do you think there's still quite a bit of scope for someone to come in do their feasibility, get through a year of planning and still provide a product that is going to be sold or taken up over a two, three-year period? I, I think there is scope in Kalgoorlie. you just got to be mindful of civil costs and your other input costs in construction up there. So you probably need to engage with a local builder, for example, that's got the local trades and try and minimise any civil component because that's very expensive to get civil contractors. For example, Development WA couldn't get a civil contractor in Kalgoorlie. They had to bring it from down from Geraldton to do the work. Surely it gets subsidised by the $100,000 of gold you find when you dig a, <laughs> dig a hole, right? Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> Mate, uh, let's talk about, I guess, some of the more quiet work that you do that not many people would know about. Colab Capital, you were behind quite a few hotels that people would have stayed at in Western Australia. you want to talk to that? In my Mervac days, I was involved in hotels. Where I was involved in the Siebel residence in East Perth. I was involved in the Siebel down in Mandra. Mervac at the time did Bunker Bay, although I wasn't heavily involved in that. But now I'm using that expertise and residential expertise. I've been driving the vision for the Kalgoorlie Hilton, which goes to construction next month. Now, that's about 120 rooms. It's got awesome food and beverage, big conference facility overlooking the 18th Green in Kalgoorlie, which is actually going to have a bar right on the 18th Green, both an internal and external bar, which is the true 19th hole, if you like. <laughs> Don't tell me you're coming up against the Exchange Hotel, mate. Who would be brave enough to do that? <laughs> yeah, thankfully, there's a, yeah, I'm not sure if we'll have the same uh, same bar staff as the Exchange Hotel. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, there's a lot of money to go around in Kalgoorlie and, and it'd be great to actually provide some city amenity in terms of a, a real fresh food and beverage offering up there. I'm also involved in the Albany Hotel on the really gorgeous and special site of Middleton Beach. I'm really excited about this because I was there for Christmas, New Year's a year and a half ago, obviously with the borders being closed and, and I thought, geez, this, is, this place is ripe. As you know, that's an iconic site for Western Australia. So we're actually going through the State Design Review Group at the moment there. We've got a fantastic scheme of about 70 service departments or suites right on the beach, which that site's very similar to me is like being on Manly Beach in New South Wales, Trent. It's just an awesome site that deserves a really fantastic, respectful project that um, has a lot of amenity. Look, it's got unbelievable views, and basically the whole ground plane will be given back for food and beverage activity. 
I find that super exciting. Well, Will's Domain, what's going on there? Yeah, so Will's Domain is an interesting project with CoLab Capital. We're looking at doing 19 cabins in the winery. They'll be a combination of one-bedroom studios and, and two bedrooms. They'll have their own fire pit, their own external bath, and they'll leverage from the facilities of Will's Domain, which, as you know, has a world-class restaurant and winery. Oh, I think I've been there for weddings, and you think, what a smart idea. How many people would love to stay there the night of the wedding, for example? You, you just imagine these places to be booked out all year. Exactly right. So there's a real shortage of accommodation down there, but when you've got such a world-class food and beverage facility well then they will book the hotel out for the night and it's amongst the vines it's overlooking a magnificent dam and and beautiful greenery it's going to be very special we've lodged our da there recently and we hope to start construction in about six to eight months what's going on at yanchep and two rocks there's some pretty famous names behind this yanchep and two rocks the the venture that i'm involved in there is the capricorn village joint venture which is owned by tokyo corporation and the Newton and Smorgan families out of Melbourne. So I've been involved in that project for about 10 years as a strategic advisor to the actual owners. And that's really around, again, just my external advice around where the marketplace is at, what product's right for the marketplace, just helping the project team. And in particular, the Capricorn Beach Village site, which is going to be, again, a really important beachside village for Yanship. Is this the redevelopment of that hotel back in the day where we go as kids and hang out and uh, it was it was a holiday for people? That's years right. Ago. It's the redevelopment of uh, the hotel that Bond Corporation actually owned yeah. and Bondi had a chalet up on top of the hill there. Wow. So that's the actual site. Look, we spent half an hour talking about what you've been up to. I think we should spend the next 25 minutes talking about your perceptions of the market, your perspectives of the market. Try and add some value back to everyone listening who I'm sure have already sitting there amazed at what you've been able to achieve in your career. First thing I want to ask, I guess, is straight off the bat, any advice to investors and developers, especially those who are probably on on the more novice side, listening, trying to learn in a market like this, where people can feel a little disheartened because they don't have the the ins, the skills, it's not as easy to acquire sites, it's not as easy to get feasibilities right, but there's certainly a lot of passive upside risk mitigation and opportunity and growth in the market. How do you perform? How do you mitigate risk and make sure that if you're going to be dipping your toes in for a first or second time, you're not being stung by that to a point where you're probably sitting out of the game for a decade, licking your wounds? Yeah. My advice for investors is always be careful and not get emotionally involved in the acquisition You should always buy for the long and medium term when you buy an asset or an investment. So be patient. Watch the herd mentality. Australians are somewhat like sheep. If we hear that fact at a dinner party that everyone's buying an investment property, a lot of people go home and actually talk with their partner about buying an investment home. Mm. That's probably the wrong time to buy, Trent. That's when you should possibly think about selling. Mm. So try and be very disciplined in what you buy. At the outset, come up with your criteria list, if you like, and try not to deviate from that. And don't feel pressured by the agent. It's okay to say no. It's okay to not acquire that property if it's essentially pushed past what you wrote down was going to be your limit. Absolutely, it's okay to not buy that property because there's always going to be another one around the corner. What I try and say to people is buy on the downward cycle and sell on the upward cycle if you need to liquidate the asset. Having said that, I think we're both on the same page that we are in an upward cycle. I think we're both on the same page as well that there are still opportunities in this market 
the right opportunities with the right level of risk mitigation to be able to start and finish a project in this cycle and be still quite risk mitigated, still make a profit. There's still opportunity there. There's a lot of confusion at the moment in Perth. On one hand, we've got record levels of demand, record under supply and record levels of affordability. But on the other hand, we've got expectations of rising cost of living and expectations within that of rising interest rates. So people on the one hand look at the data and for example myself and I'm very confident about future growth over the medium term in this market but the other hand there's still quite a lot of people looking at it uh, calling the death knell of the market at the same time. So on the one hand there's a whole bunch of people around the campfire talking about the opportunities and then everyone else scared away. It's a very confused market right now I would have thought. Yeah. I don't think it should be confused. I think it's just confused because it's actually the market's ramped up so quickly since it actually bottomed in, you know, July August 2019. I think there's terrific opportunities in in the Perth marketplace for developers or investors, Trent, purely based on fundamentals. We're only sort of a few years into this run. Yes, we've had unprecedented supply and labour constraints. They'll be around for a while, but they that will normalise in time. I still think we've got a few years to run. Our major infrastructure projects have been delayed. Maybe in, sometimes it's, it's good to look back. It's good to compare what we're experiencing now, the data points, but also the experience with where things were in the last boom, where we did see prices rise. How are things compared to then? Trent, the key difference is, I think, last time it was built up over a long period of time. You know, we had, we had the mining boom, we had strong population growth from about 2003 through to 2008 when the GFC, we probably did, really didn't even have a GFC here then, no. until the market, you know, until the mining boom sort of finished in 2012, 2013. This time it's happened so quickly and differently. Basically the market bottomed out in August 19, was beginning to recover, and of course then we had the pandemic, and then we had a massive amount of government intervention, massive amount of money thrown to businesses massive amount of money thrown to consumers in home builder and other things. And basically, I still think we've got a long way to run. Our unemployment is super low. Our median house price is still one of the lowest in the country at around 540000 It's still affordable. You know, with the lowest interest rates in history, we shouldn't worry about interest rates going up to 1.5%. That's probably not a bad thing in time. I still think there's terrific opportunities out there. And the one thing I think some of the experts haven't recognised is that immigration levels are going to go back to normalised levels. It's only a matter of time. Obviously, our borders have been shut, what have you. But we're going to get immigration levels back. And what we're already starting to see is interstate migration swing back the other way. So I'm quite confident with the marketplace going forward. But again, you just be, you need to be disciplined and, un- and unemotional about your buyers. In terms of developers, what I say about the developers, they just need, need to be careful buying in oversaturated markets where there's a lot of supply coming on. Costs are increasing, so target sites that aimed at owner-occupiers that you can pass those costs on. That's really important. So if you're targeting owner-occupiers, if they're selling in the marketplace to downsize, they'll also absorb those higher prices. Because they've taken higher profit on the way through. Correct. So I believe the marketplace will absorb the prices. What the developer needs to do in buy areas where they have a strong median house price. For example, it costs the same pretty much to build a apartment block in Rivervale or in Claremont. Mm. So building Claremont or, or, I don't know, South Perth, where they'll absorb the additional construction costs because I still think we've, again, got a long way to go in that regard. That's a great point. And um, a lot of people wouldn't recognise that is that whilst prices have gone up about 50% on the build cost side of things, that is, again, across the board. A townhouse that you would build in Dianella for 300 grand has gone to 
450 grand. But it's, in Netherlands, it's gone from 350 to 500. It's not that much of a difference. However, the price point has certainly covered that, whereas in Dinella, it probably hasn't covered it, which is why what we'll see is those projects in the higher spec areas, they will be able to go ahead. We will see uh, that come through. And, and ironically, what I think we'll end up finding is that around the median house price areas in Perth, we're actually going to suffer even more on the supply side because most small-time developers won't be able to make it stack up. So the supply will never come on. That's right, Trent. I mean, it's only going to work in certain markets. If I was out buying land, I'd be focusing on median house prices where you want to target about 10 or 15% under those median house prices, um, typically over a million dollars or thereabouts. So you're bringing in prices around $800,000, dollars mm. Well, what we find is often downsizers want to actually downsize and put a bit of money in their pocket or actually give a bit of the money to the kids. So they're actually selling at a higher price than downsizing and, and taking three or $400,000 off the table. Off the cuff question here, if you had 500 grand in your pocket today and you had to go and spend it on something with leverage, with the bank involved, would it one, be a development or a passive investment? And two, would you have any inclination as to what that might look like in Perth right now? I'd follow infrastructure. And I still think an area, if I had to spend $500,000, I'd buy probably around Joondal up. I just think with the freeway extension going further up the coast, I think with the freeway now expanding to three or four extra lanes, that uh, the distance to Joondalup is a lot closer and it's still relatively cheap compared to Caranup. In the last six months or so, I've noticed that pricing in Gwellup, Caranup and Scarborough has probably gone up about $300,000 per house. They just hit the million dollar mark as a median. So Joondalup median house price is substantially less in those areas. That's why I actually think that'd be a good buy or some other areas around that location. I think that's a great point. It's it's crazy to think two years ago, you could buy a family home in Padbury for $530,000, even less if it was a door upper. Yeah. Now you're seeing eight hundred, nine $900,000 for the same house on the same block. Yeah. You know, no one is talking about that. And what I think the median house price metrics that we talk to all the time hides is because we're seeing a lot of volume still going through on the on the bottom end of the market, it's suppressing a representation of what's actually happening above the median house price. And that's 30, 40% rises in these suburbs you're talking about, mm. all the way from Kareen up to Padbury Absolutely. and along the coast. Yeah. Let's say we find that site in the city of Joondalup. We've got our location sorted out. Our timing is still risk mitigated as per what Evan and Trent agree on. When it comes to actually design principles, and I guess these are more qualitative things, not quantitative things, but qualitative, what would they be? I have several principles that I adhere to, Trent. Never leave any stone unturned, so properties all around the detail. Make sure you cover off all the one percenters and cover off everything in detail because it's important in property. So it's the geotech report, it's checking the fence quality, it's looking for background on the, the builders. It's yeah, checking your floor plans, checking your views, getting up in a cherry picker to work out where is the best aspect. Is it impacted by road noise or a potential site that could be built in front of you? If you can argue design development excellence and get an extra two stories, does that open up water views or city views? So even though that might include a bit more financial investment, certainly this is the opportunity. You've got this block now. Do what you can to make the most of it. Absolutely. And there is value in good design. I cannot overemphasize how important good design is. Even though it might cost a bit more, there might be a multiplier on it. My view is this is where true value is created. It's not only the look and feel, but it's the functional layouts, the livability, and trying to maximize your views, your aspect and amenity. Everything you do, even if it's a property for 500000 I always think about, would I enjoy living here? 
And I think that's something that especially novice developers, even I found myself in this trap in early days, is that because you don't have the evidence that good design and good quality does return a multiplier, you generally will try and risk mitigate by going the other way and trying to squeeze as much in or make it as cheap as possible value for money. But then you're leaving a lot of the upside on the table, aren't you? Yeah, I have quite a different approach to that. My approach is less is more. That's right. And I've learned that over time. So don't be greedy. Often the highest and best use is is less, in a sense. And, And what I'm talking about there is leaving something on the table for others, looking at maximizing every square meter you build. How do I maximize the revenue on that? Trent, this is where a lot of builders try and become developers. They only concentrate on the cost side not on the revenue side. Costs, to me, in a sense, costs are costs at the end end of the day. The real discretionary element or the real opportunities to play in the revenue per square metre, and that's where the upside is. It's hard for novices to have confidence in that, though, because it's a tough one if you've never been in that market and never seen the evidence yourself, especially even if you haven't bought in that market either. Absolutely. But what I would say to you, don't always believe the theory of the feasibility. Mm. Work out, am I going to be able to sell this many things Am I going to be build it for that? Am I going to be able to get a quick approval? You know, is it going to be an attractive place in, to live? Great point. And you could even you know look at it on a much more basic level, like land development, for example. It might make sense on paper to develop thirty lots instead of twenty five. But if you have to develop these thirty in a way that the last five will be so unattractive they can't be sold, and those last five is where your profit is, well, then on paper you've made some money. But what, by the time you get to market, you've actually got a, a failure of a development. Potentially, absolutely. One of my other principles is you pay for your success. Don't skimp on things, and it's not about being lucky. Don't take shortcuts. So if you do things properly, go through the proper process with rigour and discipline. Pay the builders to make sure they make make margin. Pay the consultants to ensure that they get recompense for their work because that is all about setting yourself up for success. So a good transaction is one where everyone wins. Absolutely. Everyone must win. Otherwise, if they, if they don't get a paid accordingly or don't get recompense accordingly, shortcuts are taken. Mm. And that's what I think you're seeing some issues over in the east coast of Australia with DNC contracts and things where, unfortunately, the builder has cut out some of the consultants out of the process, which has impacted on the quality of the build. Are you talking to Opal Mascot in these places? Yeah, I'm talking about examples like that. Well, what you're seeing, Trent, there is, is normal design development process hasn't happened where you've got experts around the table. This DNC process has brought builders into that where they've tried to take shortcuts because they needed to be competitive. And unfortunately, sadly, this is what's happened with some of those results. I'm not saying all builders. There's, a, there's all, only a, always a small element in the marketplace that potentially does that, but it gives the whole industry a bad name. A lot of people right now are looking at their feasibilities and recognising when they're looking to acquire a property, it doesn't stack up. The build costs increases have essentially soaked up all recognisable profit in a development and people are left with a couple of choices. One, gamble on the upside of the project even though you can't prove it right now or two, sit and wait it out for a couple of years until you can prove up some profitability either through increased sales values or decreased build costs. Which way would Evan Campbell go? The third option is to not buy anything. Well, I'd be very disciplined about where I buy at the moment but as I said earlier, I think this market's got some somewhat time to run going forward. I would back myself of buying sites in the right markets that can absorb those costs. The reality is, Trent, costs aren't going to go down overnight. History has to- told us that they've, they might plateau, but they're not going to go down overnight. My view would be to buy sites 
in markets, places that, can, that are unsaturated, have little supply and can absorb those costs. That's probably the best advice I think anyone could give right now is don't try and break the game, recognise this is the game and work with it. Absolutely. Yeah, history's shown that. Costs may come down over time, but it's not like we're going to bring in a whole heap of workers next month to deal with our manpower issues. That's right. Yeah, and that's what I think. I think this problem is solved over the long term as a meeting in Perth, not by build costs coming down. I think we've just hit a new level in the same way that a 4 by 2 cost $150,000 to build in 2010. Now it's three fifty. This is inflation. That's how it works. It is the game. Recognize it's probably that's not going to be the solution. The solution will be a market coming up through undersupply and replacement cost parity uh, where the sales values start to equal that out. I think that's the only solution for developers in this market. And therefore, the best way to mitigate yourself on it is to develop in areas where the market can pay for those increases in sales values based on affordability through income. Yeah, I absolutely agree, Trent. Evan, it's been a fantastic chat. It's one of the longer chats we've had, but because it's been so so valuable, I love hearing your story. I love hearing, uh, I guess, the advice, and it's it's so much quality of advice that we're talking about today. Thanks so much for coming in. I would love for the opportunity to have a chat with you again sometime in the next year or so to talk about where the market is going and whether your finger on the pulse is still saying buy or, or hold. Thanks very much, Trent. Well done. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!